can, can you think of a time that you were overwhelmed or just, just overcome with despondency or depression? Maybe it was last year in school, you looked at your syllabus or all the classes or all the things that were due, and you were like, I don't know how they're going to get done. Or maybe you, it was the end of last month where you had all your bills here and you looked at your bank account and the wrong one was bigger than the other. Or maybe it was last week when 8.30 at night you were home alone, there's nobody to call, nobody to text, nobody to talk to. Maybe, <clears throat> this isn't a personal story, but uh, maybe it was... Uh, somebody, somebody, you've worked and worked and worked all day cleaning and cleaning and cleaning your house, and maybe your husband and your children don't have the same appreciation of cleanliness for you, and you just feel like giving up. Like, what is going on? Maybe it's when you look at the news or the we- uh, website and you see all this going on around, and you're just overcome or overwhelmed, or you see another government official in trouble, and you're like, oh boy, what is going on? That's the first question. The second question I ask is, does the Bible have anything to say about that? Does the Bible have anything to say when, at those times, those minutes in your life when you're just overcome, where you're just despondent? Well, we come to the minor prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Many I would say, other than probably Lamentations, which we've already covered, Steve's got that one down, um, probably the most neglected parts of the Bible. And many people think that they should just be dismissed because they're archaic or they make no sense. And I hope that you've seen over the course of three years um, that they aren't. And we've been in Micah for three years, but I was, I was heartened by a, a pastor. I was, he was talking about James Montgomery Boyce. He was a pastor in Philadelphia at 10th Presbyterian Church. And he said, you know, the, the minor prophets are some of the most challenging and most difficult texts in all the Bible. Not because they're hard to understand. They're, they're very straightforward. They make sense. But because they're so important and so appropriate for today. And so he said he had to space them out. The, this pastor said he took 10 years to go over the minor prophets, kind of sporadically. So I don't think he probably spent three years in Micah, but regardless, um, we're at the end. And so I took a little, I took a little solace in that, especially since uh, it's been somewhat of a joke amongst some of you of how long it's, we've been in Micah. So, um, but here we come to Micah, verse chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, I trust you there. It starts like this. Woe is me! All right, quick time out. Whenever you're starting to prepare for a message and your first, the first sentence is, woe is me, it makes you second guess what you're preaching on. But anyway, I, we continue. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lay in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them 
is like a briar. The most upright of them like a thorn hedge. A day, the day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. Now the confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth. And from her who lies in your arms, for the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I will rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because he has sinned, because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. I will bring, he will bring me out of, to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down in the, like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. From, and fr- from Egypt to the river. From sea to sea. From mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants. For the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff and the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead. As in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. They shall be in fear of you. Who is, like you, a God, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. All right, well, just a bit, little bit of a review because I know there are some of you who weren't here three years ago. And, uh, um, so uh, the story of Micah, he had a long uh, prophetic ministry. And it was at a time when uh, the, the nation had already been split. And it, he's writing here at the end when Assyria had already taken the northern ten tribes of Israel. And so there's just the two tribes of Judah down in the southern region. And at the present time of Micah, they're experiencing their content. Things are going well, especially if you're rich or you're you have one of authority. He says that there's people who are not doing what is right. But for those people, things are going well. And so he says this. All through Micah, he says, all right, here, here's the, the two-part lesson. I'm going to take you on a roller coaster ride. Strap in, buckle up, because I'm going to give you judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. And you may not have seen that over the, this, this time, but just kind of look at with me as a review of, of Micah. First of all, Micah 1 and 2, he says, there's 
Watch out. The mountains are going to be laid bare. They will melt underneath him. And he says in, in, verses one, in verse 5 of chapter 1, All this is for the transgression of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. It's because the transgression, the judgment is coming. He says in ver, verse 2 of chapter 2, Those people covet fields, and so they take them. They desire houses, and so they seize them. But he gives us, at the end of chapter 2, he gives us this little sliver of hope. He says, but there will be a remnant that I will gather. But then, so he brings us a little bit up, and then he plunges us back down again in chapter chapter 3, in one of the lowest parts of Micah, in verse 2, in chapter 3, he says this, You who hate the good and love evil, you who tear the skin off from off of my people, and the flesh from off of their bones, you who, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up in a meat like a, in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. This low point. But then in, chapters four, in chapter 4, the first part of chapter 4, he brings us back up and gives you this beautiful perspective and this beautiful uh, proclamation of what this coming day of the Lord will be like where everybody will come to the, to the mountain of the Lord. And in verse 3, it says, he will, in a famous verse, he will judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their plow, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Unless we get, we, we get too hopeful. He plunges us way back down in the, to the depths at the end of chapter 4. But he brings us up again. In chapter 5, verse 2, he talks about somebody, a ruler that's coming out of Bethlehem who is going to rule Israel. The, and he says he will shepherd the people. The people will be delivered. There will be this remnant that will be saved. But, all, but now he says the rest of the nations as well will be judged. And then in, verse, in chapter 6, he says again, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. The Lord is going to give his com- condemnation before the mountains. And in, in verses 10, he says, Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, in the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the wicked man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? The rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. And so he continues. So he gives us judgment and hope and judgment and hope, judgment and hope. And then he continues here in the first part of verse 7, in chapter 7. And I titled this, verses 1 through 6, Evil. It says, Woe is me, for I have become barren. He's talking about the nation. And it's, there's this famine, there's this um, barrenness of the, of the nation. But it's not because there's no figs, it's not because there's no grapes, it's because there is no one who is godly. There is no one who is upright. He gives, there's, see, there's no nuances here. There's, there's no way to kind of sugarcoat this. There's good versus evil, and evil's winning. There's no superhero to help. And he goes on and talks about all the different ways in which just evil has perpetrated and inflicted the, the nation. First, he starts with the society. He talks about in verse 2, the godly have perished. 
If you remember chapters 3, he talks about the prophets. Yeah, there's prophets, and they will preach. If you give them food, they're going to bless you. But if you withhold food and you, they're hungry, they're going to curse you and say that things are, things are going to go bad. Or later in chapter 3, he says, the priests, yeah, they'll prophesy, they'll proclaim, but only if the, you give them money. So I ask you again, is Micah applicable for today? Many would say, boy, look at the nation. There's no God-fearing people anymore. I, um, I would say, you know, probably the number of Christians probably hasn't changed much. There was probably a lot of professing Christians that may not have been. But there's no de- debate that the, the church attendance has dropped by any measure of, that you use. The decline in, in churches today and, and people who attend. And people will talk about the way the world is and the demise. But he goes on. He says, not only is society inflicted with this evil, but he gets a little smaller. He says that these governments, the people who are, and the judges, the judicial, judicial system that is supposed to protect those who are weak, who are oppressed, the orphans and the widows, even they have this evil. Their hands are on what is evil, in verse 2, to do it well. The prince, those who are in authority, and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters evil, the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. We saw that earlier in chapter 3. It talked about the heads of the nation of Israel. They proclaim judgment for a bribe. There's great men who are uttering evil. They were using power and their money for illicit purposes. How true it is today. How many people using government funds for personal uses. All you have to look is no further than the governors of Illinois, our past, and see how that is infected in today's. And then in verse 4 he says, you know what? You can't even walk by them. You can't even get by them without you being torn to shreds. It says the best of them is like a briar. The most upright is like a thorn hedge. You walk by and there's no other recourse other than just being torn up by these people. thought how similar it was these verses were to Phil's message two weeks ago uh, on Proverbs 4. It says this, Do not add it to the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the, the wine of violence. Isn't that true here? There's people, not only in society, there's, there's no godly people, but then there's the judges and the, who, are, who are only you know, judging for a bribe. And the government authorities, they do whatever they want, whatever their money provides for them. You know, these themes of good and evil are not all that uncommon. I couldn't help but think of um, one of the few books that I've read more than once, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And uh, many of you know the story, but if you, if you, if you don't, there's the, the, the Fellowship of the Ring. You've probably seen the movies. And they're off to, they're, the goal is to try to destroy this ring because it has special powers. It makes you invisible, but it ultimately destroys whoever wears it. And the, the evil kingdom is trying to get it back, the, tower, the evil Sauron and uh, the, the country of Mordor. And as the, the trilogy progresses, it starts out very happy and jovial up in the Shire, but they, as they go des- descend south and southeast, 
things get darker and more bleak and more bleak. The fellowship gets broken up. People try to... There's infighting and strife and all that, all that happens. And then even the sky becomes black. And it just continues to go into dismay and dismay and despondency until, if you remember, at Minas Tirith, it's just black as can be. And, now, and then they're laid siege by, in Gondor, in the country of Gondor, by the huge army of Mordor. And there's no recourse. And everybody in the, in the city is just given up. They just give up to, with despondency. And you'll have to read the rest. I think many of you know the end of, the, of that story. But this is the same here. Micah, in the end of verse 4, he looks forward to 100 years. And he says, the day of your watchman, of your punishment. He's, saying, he's looking forward. And in 586, he's talking about that day when Babylon would lay siege to, to Jerusalem. They would come and they would eventually destroy it. But they would lay siege. And then he goes on and he, he explains all the evil that is going to continue in that country. All the, the evil. It says, not only has society broken down, not only has the judicial system broken down and the governments, but he now says, put no trust in your neighbor and no confidence in your friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from even her who lies in your arms. So he's just shrinking this circle of evil. You know, this circle of evil has inflicted all these people, and now it's, don't even trust your neighbor. You can't even go outside and don't even trust your friend, even the wife who lies in your arms. The son treats the father with contempt. Is there anywhere with, that this evil has not inflicted? It just talks about, the first six verses just talk about things not as they should be. Things that are just pervaded with the evil. And I thought, what better example of this, a concrete example, somewhat humorous, is in our fairy tales. And I thought of Sleeping Beauty, the old story of Sleeping Beauty. You all know the story of Sleeping Beauty, right? Of Aurora and how her parents couldn't have kids, and then they finally did, and so they have a big birthday party for her. And the evil witch is uninvited. Who is it? What's her name? Maleficent, yes. She's uninvited. Well, she crashes the party and she proclaims, this never made sense to me anyway, but it was um, that if she pricks her finger before the age of 16, what will happen to her? Do you not know the story of Sleeping Beauty? Come on. What happens? She'll die, thank you. But one of the fairies who hasn't given her blessing, she says, well, she won't die. She'll just sleep unless true love she is awoken by true love. And you know the end of the story. Prince Philip comes and kisses her, and they live happily ever after. <clears throat> but what has happened, is, I think it's very interesting. There's been a new movie, a new movie called Maleficent. I haven't seen it, but I think it's interesting what they've they've basically taken a revisionist history. They say, you know, this story is just too simple because life is way, way more complex, which I would agree with them. But they say, you know, Maleficent was really the one who's trying to protect her. She's, she was the one who ended up being on Aurora's side. And it was actually Maleficent at the end who kisses her on the forehead 
And it's, she's the only one who has the true love for Aurora. And she's the one who wake, awakens uh, Aurora, Sleeping Beauty, from her, her sleep. You know, it's, it's, she's just been misconstrued, mis, misunderstood. Or another, I, I picked the two weirdest uh, fairy tales, I don't know why, but Wizard of Oz, you know, with all their scary monkeys and everything. And so you know, you know the story well of, of the Wizard of Oz and how Dorothy gets, is, is in a tornado and doesn't, isn't in Kansas anymore. And she goes and she wipes out the Wicked Witch of the East and the Wicked Witch of the West comes to gain the ruby magic slippers. And she doesn't, so she pr- says, I'll get you basically. And you know the end of the story. And at the end, uh, you know, she tries to thwart uh, uh, Dorothy along the way, but it's Dorothy who throws water on her and she shrinks and says, I'm shrinking and I'm shrinking. Well, it was a couple years ago, if you remember, the wildly popular play called Wicked. And it was um, it was told in the viewpoint of the Wicked Witch of the West, and it says, hey, she's just misunderstood, she's misconstrued. What happened is really the, the good witch, the good witch Glinda, she was the one who made fun of her in college. And so the Wicked Witch of the West, it's because she was green and everybody made fun of her. And so she, the real bad person is Glinda, the good witch. And the bad witch is really just misunderstood misconstrued. Well, you know, it's, that's, those are kind of two humorous examples. But, and some would say, oh, that's just revisionist history. But uh, I was reading Lauren Mansky. She wrote for a college newspaper in Texas, and I think she nails it. There is a danger, I think, um, and the danger could be this. It could cause people to associate the dark and grotesque with the fascinating and complex. While the good is made to seem boring and naive at best, Hypocritical and conniving at worst. It fails to clarify what good and evil are, and it fails to provide meaningful insight into how over evil can be overcome. Well, it's one thing if you do it with fairy tales. <clears throat> but it's another thing altogether if you do it in our real story of good and evil. Are things worse than before? Are there people who are calling good evil? Micah says, look at the evil that's in my time. Isaiah says, look at the evil in my time. A verse in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So it's not all that different than the time of Micah. It's not all that time of the time of Isaiah. It's not all that different from the time of Adam and Eve. What was happening in the time with the serpent? He said, what is good is evil. He's just calling God a liar. And whenever we say that good is evil and evil is good, we're just going back to that time in the garden when good was called evil and evil is good. Well, how do we respond? You know, there's the shrinking of circles of inflicted wickedness and evil. The society has been inflicted, the government, the judicial system has been inflicted, your neighbors, those who you our friends with has been inflicted. Your family has been inflicted, even your, in your own family. So well, how do we respond? First of all, and these would be good to write down, Micah says this, but as for me in verse 7, but as for me, here's how we respond. First of all, I think we respond this way. First of all, we acknowledge it. We identify 
the problem. We don't dismiss it or sugarcoat evil. We say, as he said in verses 1 through 6, there is a problem. It's evil. Things are not the way it should be. We acknowledge that there's sin in the world. But second, secondly, look, look to God, it says. And third, wait. I will wait for the God of my salvation. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Now, this isn't just going and sitting on your hands and waiting for the Lord. Um, there was a, in college, I heard the story. It might be like one of these Christian college urban myths. But um, there's a story of, uh, the, the story was that there was this, these Christians, these like five Christians. The name, number always changed, so you never knew if this was a real story. But there was these five Christians. They always asked the Lord and they, if they should go to class every day, and they never heard from the Lord, so they, you know, they ended up in dropping out of school. But um, so this isn't the waiting that is talked about here. It's talking about a waiting for the Lord, trusting that because it says the God of my salvation, knowing that the same God who worked His salvation is the same God that will sovereignly work his purposes. But then we have, at the end, God's promise. It says, my God will hear. Isn't that comforting? My God will hear. You acknowledge the evil. You acknowledge the pain. You acknowledge the despondency. And you look to God, and you wait for God, and the promise is he'll hear. He'll hear. You know, there's so many times where people... at at the greatest point of trial and tribulation is when they pray. In fact, I, had, I was talking to a neighbor two weeks ago, not a Christian, but we've had many spiritual conversations. And she's at a point where she, she, there's a situ, situation in her life that she cannot control. It's out of her control. You know, we try to control everything. We try to control the uh, temperature in our house, if you have an air conditioner that works, unlike ours. You try to control the temperature in your car. You try to control everything. Well, how many kids you have and when. You try to control all things in your life. And when there's things you can't control, what do you do? Even somebody who doesn't know the Lord but has, has some vestiges of belief, she's, she prays. And I didn't have the heart to say to her, God may not hear your prayers. As he says, as there is a caution in other parts, Jer- Jeremiah eleven fourteen. Therefore, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf. For I will not listen when they call to me at the time of their trouble. Or Isaiah one fifteen, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And so, if you're walking with the Lord, though, the promise is for us is that he will hear. He will hear you. Now, the promise isn't that he's going to give you whatever you want. Many people think, oh, I just, I just pray, I just, I just acknowledge my pain. I, you know, there's this perfect three-step process. I acknowledge, I identify evil or the, the problem I have. I look to God and I wait, and God will hear and do whatever I ask. I just put my prayers in this gumball machine, and out gets all I get, this nice gumball. That's not what's promised here, is it? It's the, what's promised is that he will hear. That is the comfort. Now, some of you may say, well, I don't get it. I mean, I see evil around. I see it in the newspaper. Well, you don't get newspapers, but I see it in the websites. I see it on the news. 
But it's, and I see it in, in uh, even in our own city. But I'm not really infected by it, I don't think. I mean, I don't think my wife is hiding under anything under her pillow. But what does he do? He shrinks the circle even farther and farther. In verse 9, he says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. He says, the evil that he sees outside is now an evil within himself. He sees the sin within him. And I, as I was thinking about it, I say how true that is when I am wronged or when I am cheated by or by someone else or when I'm lied to. I thought about the evil and the treacherous thoughts that race through my mind. And some of the worst forms of evil are those thoughts that I've personally experienced. This is the worst form of evil. And I would argue if you're honest with yourself, it would be the same for you. I so appreciate Ravi Zacharias. He's a Christian apologist and he goes around to colleges, secular and Christian, and, and he has a lot of debates with atheists and other religions. And there's always the question of why is there evil in the world? What do you, why is God a, how can God be a loving God? And he's been so helpful because he says, the ultimate problem is the evil that's in your own heart. That maybe you don't act on it like some of the, the mass murderers or the stories you hear in the news. But if you're honest and you look at your own heart, you see that that evil is that same evil And since Micah says that, he says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. He understands that he's worthy of judgment as well. He says, until he pleads my case, but God will execute judgment for me. It's God who will judge, but he will judge because of his son. He will bring me out of the light, and I shall look upon him and upon his vindication. I thought of the fighter verse for this week. Psalm 34, 15 and 16. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. How true is that? And he says the enemies will be judged. He talks about that they will be trampled under, like in verse 10. And then he proclaims a coming day and a coming judgment. In verses 11 through 17, It says, there is going to be a coming day, a day for the building of your walls, and in that day, a boundary shall be far extended. So that did happen. After uh, Assyria came and destroyed Judah, after Babylon came and laid siege to Jerusalem, and they went off and they were exiled, it was about 40 years later that some of them started returning to the nation of Jerusalem, or to the city of Jerusalem, rather. You You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah, how they came back. And so there is, uh, he's looking for, Micah is looking to that day. Not only the judgment, not only the day of the watchman when they're going to be destroyed, but he looks even farther and he says, there's another coming day. Just a little bit after, there's going to be a hope and they're going to be coming back to this, to this city. But it's clear that he's not only speaking about that coming day, he's talking about a coming day of the Lord. It's clear he says that because he says this in verse 12. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from the, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. 
I think it's interesting. He starts the beginning of the chapter, and he says, you can't trust anybody. There's nobody you can trust. You can't trust all these different people. You can't even trust yourself. But he says here, in that day, it's going to be expanded, and everybody's going to come. There's going to be this great place, this new earth, that everybody will come from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. It's a clear foreshadowing of Revelation 5.9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And it says in verse 15 that, in verse 14, that he's going to, the prayer is to shepherd your people. And it says you, in verse 15, I will show them marvelous things. In that coming day, there will be marvelous things. I was comforted by this, I listened to an older song from Waterdeep. I don't know if you know it, but the song, it starts like this. It says, talking about life, it says, it's a long, hard road with a good, good end. It's a long, hard road with a good, good end. And he's talking about this. There's, there, we will see marvelous things. There will be a judgment that will have a good, good end. Make mo- no mistake, our lives count for who God is and his commands are of infinite worth and are infinitely profound. And therefore, our response will have an infinite impact. And there will be judgment. There will be judgment for all. In verses, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Woe to you rulers who make crooked what is straight. There's coming a judgment, and God is saying, I'm going to make all this crooked straight again. In verses 16 and 17, he's talking about the judgment for everybody. The nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent like the crawling things of the earth, and they will come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall lay it, turn in dread to the Lord. Joy, God one day will judge for all time, and all will be accountable. And now we come to the end. Some of the greatest words in all of Micah. There were some great words spoken in Micah 4, if you remember, as we talked about the, the coming day of the Lord, where nations will flow to that mountain where he will judge between the peoples as I read and there will be peace in verse 4 chapter 4 verse 4 they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken so he talks about some great so those are some great words there's also some great words in chapter 5 verses 4 and 5 and he says, talking about Jesus, He shall stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. And now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Some great words. But we come to, I think, even greater words here. In verses 18 through 20, we see our incomparable God. He asks the question, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for this remnant? The question is, who is like you? Who is a God like you? The answer, of course, nobody. You know, all other gods, little g, all other beliefs, you get what you get. You get what you deserve. You know, you've done this and so you deserve this. Not with Christ. Not with God. He pardons iniquity and passes over transgression. 
Micah is looking back on his history of his prophetic ministry of judgment and hope, judgment and hope, judgment and hope. And he says at the end, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? He sees a great vision of God. I thought how similar it was to Jonathan Edwards as he had gone one day, ridden out into the woods to walk and think and pray. And then he says this, I had a view that for me was extraordinary, of the glory of the Son of God. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent. That means like incomparably or inescapably excellent. With an excellently great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. You know, I know so little of what Micah is talking about, like so little of what Jonathan Edwards is speaking of. But because my, you know, as I was preparing, you get this thought and you're like overwhelmed by it and then you see something. You're like, squirrel! You know, and you're, you're completely distracted. My mind strays and it's so hard to keep, keep focus. But I had a little glimpse of that yesterday, of this vision of God. This God who pardons iniquity and passes over transgression. It was, uh, I was working yesterday and I was driving home just thinking about these three verses of God who pardons iniquity. Who is like you, God? Passing over transgression. And I, drive by, I drove by um, a free car wash. I couldn't turn down a free car wash. It was a Reformers Unanimous. Uh, it was a, they're a recovery, uh, addictions recovery program here run by, through another church here in, in Rockford, if, if you don't know. And so I drive in, and I roll down my window, and the first guy I see, the, this is the greeter. He's like about 5'9", and he looks like a guy straight out of the fairy tales, straight out of the comic strips. His arms were about the size of my thighs, and he's bald, and he's just, I mean, <laughs> looks like the meanest dude you've ever seen. And I rolled out my window, and I'm like, this is, probably isn't a really you know, successful method to get people into your car wash. But anyway, he's the greeter. And um, he rolls, I rolled in my window and he says, hey, are you, he looks, he looked vaguely familiar. He said, hey, are you Darren? I said, yeah. And he says, hey, I'm so-and-so. And uh, he's a kid I haven't seen since high school. And uh, I played football with him. And, and so we got to talking. And after high school, he just went off the deep end. I didn't, I didn't hear all the whole story. Basically, he said, just gripped by, by sin, mainly drugs and alcohol. He said, or mainly drugs. He said, just totally toasted his life. And, um, and he said, for two years I've been clean. And he said, these people here just came and, and loved me. And, and he said, you know what, I'm, I'm engaged now. There's a, and he runs the, uh, the house for the recovering the recovering addicts there. And and it just made me like get a glimpse of this. And I just said, who is a God? You know, that would take this messed up life that for, you know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years just trash, you know, and my typical skeptical mind Typically, when I hear a story like that, I'm like, okay, yes, see me in two years and see, tell me where you're at. But at that point, the Lord just allowed me to say, 
to him who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions. Who is a God like you? And then I looked at my own life and I said, who is a God like you to protect me from that life, to protect me from all the consequences of that? Who is a God like you? And then I looked, and as I was thinking about the message today, I just said, who is a God like you to give a body of believers, of brothers and sisters who delight in this story of Christ? Who is a God like you to give encouragement through small groups when we hang out, when we meet together and have ice cream? Who is a God like you, I said, to provide godly families and legacies, to provide companionship and help us in our walk with a God who delights in steadfast love? Who is a God like you that at night gives me plywood and shingles over my, my head? Who is a God like you that this morning gave us a beautiful picture of if you were up for the sunrise? Just a, Who is a God like you to give us that view and that vision? Who is a God like you to provide art and good music and literature to see new facets of the goodness of God? For we see he will not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Why? You know, it says there is a judgment. The question is, why does he pass over this? Why does he not retain his anger no more? Well, it's, it's, he can't help himself. That's who he is because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. And he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You know, like that's that that line. He will tread. It's not as just though iniquity is like a snake on by his foot, and he just kills it. No, it's like he does it with a flourish. It's like he cuts off his head, and then he stomps on it, and he kicks it, and he twists his foot on that. He he does it with a flourish. He will take your iniquities, and he will tread them underfoot. And he is a God. Who is a God like you? He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. I don't know if you've watched the news or listened to the news. They, a couple weeks ago, they found parts of a plane from on a remote island out in the Indian Ocean. And they, think, they thought it was part of the um, MH, the Malaysian flight, MH370, that went down over a year ago, March 8th of last, of last year, a year and a half ago almost. And then it was confirmed this year, or this week, that it was indeed MH370. You know, when God takes our sins and he casts them into the ocean, they're not going to come back up in a year and a half. They're done. You know, I love Corey Temboom. That sweet lady said this. When we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. <laughs> then God places a sign out there that says, No fishing allowed. Isn't that true? There's no fishing allowed. This is a private lake. This is a private ocean. He owns the ocean. No fishing's allowed. He throws them into the depths of the sea. And then in verse 20, he says, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. Over and over and over. Isn't that the story of the Old Testament? He's showing steadfast love over and over and over. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Genesis 15. I don't know, I preached it years ago, more than three years ago, if you can believe. We were at, we were at Rockford Christian. 
what the story is. He's going to make a covenant with Abraham. God is. And he says, okay, here's, what, here's how we're going to do a covenant just like we did, um, like we do in, in your time. You're going to cut up the, all these animals. And you're going to put half on one side of a hill and a, the other half on this other side. Okay, you're going, to do the, you're going to do a ram. You're going to do some birds. You're going to do, I, I, I don't remember exactly, but you're going to put a couple different animals on the side. And what you would, you're going to do is you're, you're going to walk through and I'm going to walk through. And that's basically saying, you know, we're going to make a covenant together and we're, going to, we're in this together. And if, if one of us backs out or doesn't fill our end of the argument, you're, we're going to be just like these people or these animals on, this, on the side of the hill. They're just going to get cut up. He said, so you, you better know what you're doing. I'm going to, because if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, you're going to be just like these butchered animals. And the beauty of Genesis 15, I hope, it's, again, it's one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible. God comes in like a firing fire pot, and he passes through, and then what does he do? He comes again right through a second time, and he says, you know what? I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain, and I'm going to see to it that I hold up your end of the bargain. God is going to be one who will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abram, as you have sworn to your fathers from the days of old. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you that can pardon iniquity and cover and pass over transgression? At the beginning of this message, chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Woe is me! Woe is me! And he ends... Who is God? Woe is me to who is God. He sees God for who he is. Micah starts the beginning of his book with judgment. He says, listen, you peoples, judgment's coming. It's coming because you've sinned against me. God will judge, but he ends. God delights in steadfast love. He will not, he will not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I'd like to read verses 18 through 20 to you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. I'd like you, just before I pray, would you ask the Lord, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you in what he's done in your life? and passing over transgression, and pardoning iniquity? Do you ask the Lord, who is a God like you? Lord, thanks for casting our sins into the depths of the sea, never to come again. Thanks for putting up the no fishing sign. Thanks for being faithful in the Old Testament. Thanks for the promise that you will hear. I pray 
that we will look to you, we will wait. I thank you that you will hear. Amen.